Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Telegraph. Podcasts. And then there was Chris Whitty, who you called oddly reassuring and reassuringly odd. For locking up the healthy does not work and has no point. You are here, the, the sage of Middle England, La Pearson. You know, hey ho, suddenly the laptop classes are at home perfecting the sourdough. One. We have left off. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. It's the one-year anniversary of Lockdown Britain. Should we be celebrating impending freedom or angry lockdowns gone on too long? Positive Covid tests are flatlining at around 5,000 a day, despite nearly 2 million daily tests, not least within schools. Covid patients in English hospitals over 33,000 two months ago, now total around 4,500, a sevenfold decline. Half of all adults in the UK, including your two Planet Normal co-pilots, have now had that vital first jab that confers the vast majority of anti-Covid protection. That's 95% of those in the most vulnerable groups. The EU, having jabbed little more than one in ten, seems to be cranking up vaccine hostility. There's renewed lockdown in France and German Covid cases are rising exponentially, says Angela Merkel. But her new lockdown announcement has just been reversed amid public uproar. Emotions are running high, Alison. Now, I know your myth that France prevailed last weekend, denying your beloved Welsh boys the Rugby Six Nations Grand Slam. But are you celebrating our one-year lockdown? Well, happy three weeks to flatten the curve anniversary, (laughs) co-pilot. Squash that sombrero, man. It'll be over before Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) It's lucky that in planet normal time, 12 months is just about long enough to sing happy birthday while washing your hands, isn't it, really? I think you'll have noticed this week that Pretty Patel has launched a crackdown on on illegal asylum seekers. And I'm afraid the thought that came to my mind is we'll soon be hiring those people smugglers to get us out of the UK, (laughs) Liam. (laughs) It's 4,000 quid to take me to Dieppe. Yeah, I mean, what a week, really. I was looking back at what I wrote a year ago. I mean, if we'd had any idea what it was going to be like. I mean, I think I felt quite positive then. I mean, just just compare and contrast, Liam. The Boris who gave that little speech, rather stirring speech, on the 23rd of March 2020, and there he was looking quite young and rubiconed, you know, sort of plump of cheek, and he said... And I know that as they have in the past so many times, the people of this country will rise to that challenge and we will come through it stronger than ever. We will beat the coronavirus and we will beat it together. And he looks like he'd aged 100 years, didn't you think, at the the press conference, the anniversary press conference? He reminds me of Blair either side of the Iraq war and all the controversy Mm. that that stirred. And that was like a five-year period where Blair, with respect to him, seemed to age 10 or 15 years. But that's happened to Boris. Even though he's lost quite a bit of weight, fair play to him, he does now look much older. Yeah, he does He does indeed. I did, I did feel a real pang of sympathy for him. I wrote something, Liam, for us today just because we were, we were asked, weren't we, to keep a minute silence on the 23rd to remember those who died of COVID-19. And in that minute, I was remembering everyone who had their cancer treatment stopped because the NHS became a COVID-only service, the 44,000 people who couldn't even start their cancer treatment, the 4.4 million who didn't have a diagnostic cancer test, the 400,000 people who didn't get an urgent suspected cancer referral, everyone who lost their business or lost their job, everyone who committed suicide who had suicidal thoughts, that's one in five of us, everyone who suffered loneliness or mental deterioration and hasn't seen their family for a year, Every child who developed anxiety or tics who started self-harming because they couldn't go to school or see their friends and who's missed six to ten months of precious education. 
every student stuck in a bedsit with a laptop for company, feeling their hopeful young life draining away. And I remembered at least 135,000 care home residents who died alone in the past 12 months, having had little or no contact with family members. And Liam, at least 135,000 families which have to live with the guilt and pain of not spending those final minutes with their mother, their father or their spouse. And I thought also of all the victims of the measures to combat covid a virus in which the under-70s have a survival rate of 99.95%. My God, what have we done? That's been a big theme of Planet Normal, hasn't it? Well, over the period of lockdown, mm. the one-year anniversary of which we're, let's say, marking rather than celebrating. We've never denied COVID, of course. We mourn for all those poor people who have died. We supported lockdown in its early stages. Uh, certainly when Planet Normal started, I've been listening to quite a lot of our archive over this last week before today's podcast recording. Mm. But I think we felt as the months have gone by that the balance between uh, legitimate attempts to save lives from what is a very nasty virus um, compared to the costs to society, particularly young people in society of lockdown, that balance has become out of focus, hasn't it? The government has stressed... Mm preventing covid at all costs literally at all costs at all financial costs at all costs in terms of societal well-being they failed to consider that loneliness costs lives that businesses collapsing cost lives that the economy not being able to generate tax revenue to properly fund our public services going forward costs lives and i think what we're really discussing now alison because the there is now a very powerful move in the UK towards easing lockdown restrictions. We've got our roadmap, the data from deaths and, and hospitalizations and so on that I read out uh, at the top of Planet Normal this week is all moving in the right direction. It's better than the government envisioned it would be at this time. So the government's actually under pressure to speed up the lifting of lockdown at a time when on the European mainland within the EU, lockdown is being renewed. I think now what we're looking at is the debate about the next pandemic, about the next respiratory disease. Mm. How will we respond to it? Will we lock down schools again? Will we enter into a massive economic collapse, the, the biggest so far for 300 years? I think now things have changed. Look in Germany. Angela Merkel just announced a renewed lockdown over Easter. The church leaders wouldn't have it. Society wouldn't have it. One of Europe's most powerful politicians, albeit on her electoral back foot. She's just reversed. I don't know what the German for Volt Fass is, but she's just done it. <laughs> if you think about it, Liam, where we are today, actually on this day, we are roughly where we were on the 2nd of June last year, okay? Except we've had... Also, almost 29 million people vaccinated and those people who've been vaccinated make up 99% of all COVID deaths. So I think we can see now that we are in a very, very strong position indeed and where, in my opinion, vast swathes of the country should no longer be in lockdown, although that seems to be um, an argument that we've lost. But we are seeing, aren't we, today, MPs going to vote on the renewal of the Coronavirus Act, which of course was brought in at a time of great crisis. It was an emergency measure. Some of the most draconian restrictions you know, in, in modern times or, or indeed almost in our entire history. And I think it's a cause for concern, Liam, to say the least, that the government seems to think it's OK to extend those powers until October. And I guess I'm asking you, what for? We've seen our country, a stealthy erosion of freedoms, a rise in authoritarianism, which which I never thought. I mean, I think that's been the biggest shock to me is that our doughty, you know, come off it, British spirit, that hasn't been much in, in evidence. And MPs just all lining up what to extend these extremely alarming restrictions. People can't have family in their own home. People can't meet boyfriends or girlfriends. All of these 
really fundamental things about what makes us human. And yet the government, for what reason does it want to extend these powers? I mean, I think it's borderline sinister myself. Well, I'll answer that, co-pilot. But before I do, a chapeau in your direction, because I did read your column from this week last year before we started recording. And we'll put the link to that column in the show notes of this episode, because it really is worth reading. Because in that column, pretty near the top, you say, Alison, there could be months of death and doom ahead of us. It's a fabulous column. You talk about getting the last plane out of Salzburg, yeah, literally, because you, right. you, you'd taken a, a extended post-Brexit <laughs> recovery spa break, hadn't you? Yes, <laughs> and I you had. came home <laughs> to face the madness of, of COVID. But you did presage it. You did foresee this. There could be months of death and doom ahead of us. And I'm sure you got brickbats for saying that at the time, because that was in no way a majority view. Very few people were saying that. But on the broader question that you ask, I share your concern and your alarm. I've been really surprised, not just at how draconian the British government has been and how quickly so many parts of the British public have accepted that, I've really been surprised at the media. We're meant to have a really strong, doughty, punchy, contrarian media in this country. And yet, you know, there haven't been many who, like us, have challenged this lockdown on the basis of fact and reasoning and discussion and giving voice platform to people across society, from all walks of society, who also are sceptical about the ongoing merits of lockdown. Not anti-vaxxers, not COVID deniers, but that's the difficulty we've had, isn't it? Just to mm. marshal fact and to even quote academic studies, to even put on air, if you like, to bring to our podcasts world-leading epidemiologists yeah. who don't adhere to the establishment view is to have been pilloried and to have been ostracized by other people in the media it's as if the media has circled the wagons and that's been my real fear i think the media that's over many generations has built up the enormous trust and respect of the british people yes we get slammed and the tabloids get slammed and the broadsheets get slammed mm. for different reasons but there's always been this underlying sense that the media will back what the public is saying or at least question the establishment point of view. We have stopped questioning as a media. And to me, what my former colleagues in broadcast news have been doing night after night, the doom porn, the endless, as Sue Cook so brilliantly put it, repetition yeah. rather yes. than reporting, reporting of what's actually yeah. happening. For me, that has been the biggest kind of takeaway of this last year. And it's really put a bad taste in my mouth in terms of the media. And it's made me very proud, actually, of Planet Normal and of The Telegraph for backing us to carry on doing Planet Normal. You saw the, the media, I mean, I think of them as Pravda now, Liam, to be honest, and um, you saw them at the press briefing this week, and all they're interested in is a gotcha moment from Boris saying, I got these things wrong. That's literally all they're interested in. <laughs> You're thinking, but there's so much more you should be pressing them on. If you cast your mind back to January, Matt Hancock, Health Secretary, gave an interview to The Spectator in which he said that once all the over 70s were vaccinated, once all the vulnerable were protected, he would cry freedom. Well, you know, that's gone, hasn't it? So the goalposts are in perpetual motion now. And even worse, this week, we had our old nemesis, Professor Neil Ferguson. Did you see him still being given acres of coverage by these programmes? He's going to end up on Strictly Come Dancing, isn't he? It's only a matter of time. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> I imagine he's got at least three left feet. But, you know, there he was out there. No summer holidays abroad for you this year. And he thought, did, sorry, did we vote for you? Are you elected? Absolutely literally going out there saying, you know, oh, you won't be, you know, you won't be allowed to go have a nice holiday after a year of imprisonment. And and that for me, Liam, as well as, as the media's complicity and silence has been the apotheosis of scientists, the health and safety mentality. I mean, I was thinking that one reason Dad's Army is so beloved as a probably our favourite sitcom. What kind of segue no, is this? Right, here we go. Don't panic, Captain Mannering. It's because, <laughs> it's because Warden Hodges, OK, so there's a different attitude in life. There's Mannering and Wilson who are just sort of, you know, stuff will happen, you know, that kind of British attitude. Uh, and then there's Pike who panics a lot. 
But um, the Warden Hodges mentality, the sort of petty rulemaker, and I think what we've seen is that writ large this year with unbelievably cruel and stupid rules from taping off park benches, keeping children out of school, all of these things. And I think this has been so un-British. And when I try to explain it to myself, Liam, because I don't want to lose faith in my country, because I do love my country, the way I explain it to myself is that people have been terrorised. People have been the victim of psychological warfare. And the difference between wartime propaganda, the propaganda they had in World War II, was that was about uniting us against, uniting British people against a common enemy. But this has been separating us. This has been an attack on our morale, I think. It's been designed to secure compliance with the rules. And there has been just a lack of humanity and common sense, the kind of common sense that we normally pride ourselves on. And I blame the scientists. I really think that the reliance, not on the science, as they call it, but on a particular bunch of scientists, including Neil Ferguson. And um, you pointed out to me, didn't you, that in my piece you just referred to, I had a bit of a crush on Chris Whitty at the start, didn't I? You did. I mean, I must say, you know, <laughs> you, you you are here, the, the sage of Middle England, La Pearson, whose views are sought out by all the political parties to understand what what Britain is thinking. But, you know, you've had a few wrong calls over recent months, madam. First, there was your long extended crush on Emmanuel Macron. And then there was Chris Whitty, who you called oddly reassuring and reassuringly odd. Now, yes, you can blame the scientists. But on the other hand, it's really the politicians who you know consider what the scientists are saying, but then consider the scientists' motives and where the scientists are coming from. You know, there's nothing in it for a scientist to say, oh, I think you're fine now, because then you can blame the scientist when things go wrong. Scientists are very rarely going to say that. They're always going to put very, very, very small C conservative assumptions into their models. And also what scientists do, I'm sorry, but it happens, is they're going to give answers that, especially ambitious scientists, they're going to give answers that they think the politicians want to hear. It's up to politicians to balance all the competing evidence and animuses, the science on the one hand, with societal well-being on the other, with our diplomatic imperatives on the other, with the economy on the other. There are many, many multifaceted, complex things to balance. And that's why the people who we ultimately trust to make the big, big, big decisions are the people we elect. And that's how democracy should work. And what I think is, you know, you say you don't like Warden Hodges, the great mm. Bill Pertwee. I'm reminded of one of his most famous quotes. When Captain Mannering was getting a bit up himself, yeah. he'd say, now look here, Napoleon. And I, that's what I think we need. I think yeah. the media, society as a whole, says, has to say to our political class, now look here, mm. get a grip on this. Mm. We need to balance these risks. We can't go back into lockdown because the cure is so much worse than the disease. That's not to say that COVID doesn't exist. That's not to say that there aren't uh, precautions that we can take. It's not to say that very vulnerable people shouldn't shield, of course. But now we have the vaccine that completely changes the balance of risks that we're assessing, yet we don't seem to be changing that balance because the vaccine now exists. That's my problem. I don't think the politicians have really clocked what this vaccine means in terms of when lockdown can be released. But at the moment, of course, the polls are still on their side, aren't they? So they're finding a lot of reassurance in the polls that people are approving. But the questions in those polls, Alison, are so loaded. They are, they are, Liam, they are. But I think now, I think we're at that pivot point now because this week we had for the first time a huge coverage of this major report from the British Academy saying that the UK faces a COVID decade of social yeah. and cultural upheaval marked by growing inequality, deepening e economic deprivation, going to be major changes are needed to the way society is run in the wake of the pandemic to mitigate the impact, which includes explosion in mental illness, which, you know, we've, we've talked about and this profound social damage. But this other 
piece of research out this week. I'm, I was a full Velma here now, aren't I? This is my <laughs> Velma moment. So, so there have been winners. There have been winners in this pandemic. I, I found it personally a soul-crushing 12 months, but there have been people who've quite enjoyed it. And according to the Policy Institute at King's College London, Anne Ipsos Mori, one in five people believe that their lives have improved since last March and they, they feel more content their finances are in better shape. Uh, this is what really made me laugh is one in eight people say their mental health has improved. I'd like to smoke what they're smoking, Halligan, I tell you. But I think there were people who perhaps were living very stressed, hectic lives. They were commuting. They were spending a lot of money on the travel and the lunch. And, you know, hey, ho, suddenly the laptop classes are at home perfecting the sourdough. But some of these winners, as we might call them, the lockdown winners, are among the third of British employees who've been furloughed, okay? So I think this is how the polls are getting skewed because if you're being paid 80% of your salary to stay home with your family, then, you know, maybe you're going to think you're having quite a nice time. But there's a widening gulf, I think, between the people we're talking about, you know, um, not to mention the 33,887 excess deaths at home in England during the last year. That was Those were due to non-COVID causes. Those are the people, Liam, who are frightened to go into the hospital, but mm. most of them were not able to access services via their GP. So that's the more people we should be remembering. But this is interesting to me that on the one hand, you've got the British Academy warning of profound social damage, which is what we intuit through Planet Normal listeners. And then you've got this a fifth of the population who think that life has looked up since last March. And, and I think increasingly that that's a point of tension. What do you think? I think that's right. I think there are some very vocal people who, if not enjoyed, then certainly feel that they've benefited from lockdown. But they are largely, overwhelmingly, the people who already have secure employment from the professional classes, who live in big houses, who have gardens. How about the vast majority of people to whom that doesn't apply? People who live in cramped housing, people who are still having to go out to work to service the COVID economy, if you like, the people delivering all the stuff in cardboard boxes, mm. that the laptop classes, as you so eloquently called them, sitting there, you know, buying stuff on Amazon to make themselves feel good. And in the end, the politicians do have to reflect what the majority of people are thinking. And even though there are some people who quite like lockdown, thank you very much, and they're even starting to admit it among friends, the vast majority of people don't. I think the other thing which is extended lockdown is the fact that we've just been printing money, if you like. The Bank of England has been expanding its balance sheet to pay for everything. And we're just pretending that massive government debts don't matter anymore. Can I nominate my numpty of the week? <laughs> as long as it isn't me. <laughs> well, I was going to say, after your jab, you're sounding a little, a little hoarse, Halligan. Have you had a, have, has it given you a bit of a cough? Yeah, it has a little bit, actually, but I'm fine. I had a little bit of a cough anyway, I think. I'm doing okay. I hoped it was going to make you sort of nicer. All this AstraZeneca flooding through your veins was going to give you a bit of new respect for the for the elderly co-pilot. But no, numpty of the week. Dr Mary Ramsey of Public Health England turned up on Andrew Marr on Sunday saying that travel restrictions, masks, social distancing will be going on for a few years, said Dr Ramsey. Again, like Professor Neil Ferguson, no elected authority to go around casting doom and gloom. And I'm going to swear now, it's so bloody demoralising. Shut up. Stop saying these things. We don't want mad science round our throats. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper. And you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show. Mine! As a Telegraph chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at The Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio!
Now, our latest Planet Normal stowaway is the businessman Hugh Osmond. Hugh's the founder of Punch Taverns, which has a portfolio of around 1,300 pubs. He also helped to run Pizza Express, which has hundreds of outlets in the UK and overseas. Hugh's launching a High Court judicial review, calling on the government to justify its road map out of lockdown. Pubs and restaurants can open outdoor areas from April the 12th, when non-essential shops also reopen. But pubs and restaurants that are indoor only, that's the vast majority of them, especially in urban areas, must wait until May the 17th. Hugh says that makes no sense. We started by discussing just how much the UK's huge hospitality sector, our restaurants and pubs, have improved since the 1970s when we were both kids. And the impact of lockdown on the hospitality sector, which employs around a tenth of the British workforce. I think that UK hospitality industry has been so fantastic recently. You know, growing up, the UK was still considered definitely not in the Premier League, shall we say. You were lucky to get a wimpy and chips. <laughs> but of course, it came of age, didn't it? With the likes of Pizza Express, which you were heavily involved in. And now, not just regional big cities, but towns as well. A myriad of eating, drinking options and opportunities but they've really been whacked haven't they over the last year since march the 23rd last year the anniversary which we're now kind of celebrating not yeah and i i think as i say having come so far from the kind of early 80s you know to be world leading not just in london but all across the country you know fabulous improvement in the quality of food drink hospitality hotels the last year has just been absolutely devastating. It, it's easy to forget, and government sometimes forgets, that the, the furlough scheme and the other things they're doing are great, but they're not actually providing any income to the business owners themselves. And so, yes, you know, staff are paid. Yes, they're getting some subsidies, but you know, they're still expected to pay chunks of rent they've still got other costs and for many uh, individual owner operators this is their livelihood so if you cut off their sales if you stop customers coming tens of thousands of people have just had and got no livelihood and a lot a lot a lot of pubs restaurants cafes are individual owner operators or family businesses and they've just been absolutely screwed to the wall by lockdown hospitality employs 10 percent of our workforce here in the UK, pubs and restaurants are losing £1.7 billion a week from lockdown. We think we've already lost 350,000 jobs in hospitality. Thousands of pubs lost forever. And what's really got your goat, Hugh, is the fact that the government's roadmap, it will allow pubs that have survived to open outdoors from April the 12th. And it will allow non-essential shops to open from April the 12th. But pubs, restaurants and bars that only have indoor space, which is the vast majority of them, they have to wait till May the 17th. And that's why you and Sasha Lord, the nighttime economy advisor for Greater Manchester, where, of course, most pubs only have indoor space, you're launching this high court challenge against the government. Do you really think you can win? Well, I think what we are asking the government to do is show the evidence for their decisions. And I think that not only applies to hospitality, but it applies to society at large. You know, there's been a huge reliance on the advice of uh, sometimes unqualified scientists and on models. And what we want them to show is the hard evidence that says hospitality is less safe and less essential than non-essential retail. And, and more importantly, you know, what is the evidence on which their decision is based? You know, throughout this, Public Health England, the Office of National Statistics and other government official bodies have continuously published hard data about where infections occur. And at no point whatsoever can you link large numbers of infections to any sort of hospitality, be it indoor or out. I know intuitively it might make sense that this is where you meet your friends and this is where infections happen, but whether because of the measures that we have taken, because hospitality venues have better ventilation, you know, on what evidence do they want to keep us closed? I mean, let alone with all the vaccination that's now taking place. You mentioned the ventilation systems. That, that is significant, isn't it? Pubs and restaurants nearly always have much better ventilation systems than 
uh, non-essential shops. The Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies has said that because it has a higher standard, there's a lot less chance of airborne transmission of COVID and other uh, airborne diseases. And, of course, lots of the pubs and restaurants have spent heavily on PPE equipment and other COVID uh, anti-COVID measures, if you like. But what, what are the mechanics of this, Hugh? What happens if the court judgment goes your way? How quickly could you get that reversal? Do you think that pubs could be open indoors from April the 12th? It's not very long away, is it? No, look, we would like to get an acceleration of the reopening, you know, and any acceleration would be good. As you said, you know, 1.7 billion a week, you know, and more than 200 million pounds a day being lost. You know, even if we won a day, that's 200 million, which uh, you don't need many 200 millions for you're talking serious money, as they say. And as I said, you know, as importantly, what we want to do is to send them a message that public and the hospitality industry and other peoples affected by lockdowns and by their measures need to see the evidence. And and Sasha Lord, your co-litigant, if you like, he did have some success, didn't he, in facing down the government over scotch eggs? Well, yes, I mean, (laughs) and and he really, you know, opened up, uh, he, he got a foot in the door there because... Uh, I think that although that didn't go all the way to the judicial review, you know, the comments from the judge when he said, you know, the government has failed to put up any evidence whatsoever that a scotch egg makes the virus go away. And I think that sent the first signal to the government that actually they would have to show the evidence and just measures. And it wasn't just the Scotch egg. I mean, obviously, the curfews, the 10 o'clock curfew, which everybody in the industry, I mean, if they'd asked one person, one publican, they would have told them that all you're going to achieve by that is these massive crowds outside pubs at 10 o'clock and everybody shooting off to the off license. But, you know, it was good to see that that measure also went. And I think already, you know, Sasha has what he's achieved by that first action is to make the government think a bit harder. Now, you helped run Pizza Express with your old friend Luke Johnson, who's been a guest on Planet Normal previously. Uh, And in 1997, you founded Punch Taverns, which has, as we speak, 1,300 leased pubs. It was listed on the stock exchange. Now it's a privately owned company. You clearly know your way around running a business in the hospitality industry. But you're also a trained medical doctor, aren't you, Hugh? So with all those various hats on, how do you think in general the government has responded to... Uh, the challenge of COVID uh, and what lessons do we need to learn in case there's, as there will be, you know, another uh, respiratory disease that we have to deal with down the line? I think that the vaccine development, the government took a huge bet on that and it has come off and and credit to the UK government for that. But I think uh, other than that, the UK government and many governments around the world, I think their response has been, you know, medieval, quite honestly, because there was a lot of preparation done for potential pandemics, you know, by the WHO and by the UK itself. You know, the UK, before this happened, considered itself one of the best prepared countries in in the world. And I, I have read hundreds and hundreds of pages prepared by Public Health England and by the NHS in respect to the preparation for pandemics. What I can tell you categorically is that on March the 21st, all of that preparation was effectively chucked in the bin and they departed on a completely different pathway that was devoid of science, devoid of any track record and devoid of any evidence. They ripped up the WHO playbook. They ripped up the NHS playbook. They instead trusted this crazy model by actually a daft mathematical physicist. And they rode on that model and have been riding it ever since. It completely bonkers. I mean, Lord Sumption, Jonathan Sumption, no less, was making exactly the same point recently as he did on planet normal before the who playbook as you say the uk government's pandemic readiness playbook it wasn't about coercion was it it wasn't about you know mass economy-wide society-wide lockdown it wasn't about keeping kids off school but then suddenly what did we panic yes and i think people saw the pictures of the italian hospitals and they panicked but the clue is that they were pictures in italian hospitals now 
For hundreds of years, it has been known that what you need to do is quarantine the sick. What should have been done from day one is quarantine the sick. You know, anybody reporting, you know, with, with symptoms or at the start of this epidemic with anything that could be symptoms should have been isolated. You know, infection control in hospitals should have been absolutely rule 101. Had they done that from the outset, we'd never have been in the situation of discussing locking up the healthy. I mean, nobody's done that before. Quarantining the sick has been something that's been used as a response to epidemics, pandemics, diseases for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it works. Locking up the healthy it does not work and has no point. But you, you know, Hugh, the COVID recovery group, they're, they're treated as if they're pariahs, you know, using John Major's old phrase, the flapping of white coats. You know, how big a downturn do we need before cabinet ministers, as you say, quotes, show their hand we've had the deepest downturn for 300 years and scientists like say shanetra gupta who have advocated a more age segregated approach uh, a, a more discriminatory form of shielding rather than closing down society as a whole they have been pilloried by the media and by the medical establishment what happens to Netra gupta is is just appalling in my view because she's probably the most highly qualified epidemiologist in in the, the country. And I, I don't know how you bring it, it, it back from that, uh, as you say. Now, I would have thought in, in the early days, I don't know what you knew about the disease, but back in January, all I really knew about the disease, apart from the fact that it was happening in China, was that it was really bad and serious for very old and very ill people. I would have thought that it wouldn't be that long before you would think, now, where do you find a lot of very elderly and very ill people in the UK and in the Western world. You find them in care homes. And bingo, you'd have gone and protected those before any other single measure. And care homes and hospitals do not have good ventilation, by the way. You know, a lot of hospitals that were built post-war, you can't even open the windows. And so opening windows has been a well-understood measure since the First World War. Lots of hospitals, lots of care homes, you can't do that. And that's a critical reason. The R rate in hospitals was frequently as high as 14. And 14, each person infected 14 other people in a hospital or care home. That kind of tells you all you need to know. So how do we escape this mindset then, Hugh, where the next pandemic comes along, there'll be the same pictures of people dying in hospitals. Politicians won't be able to stand up to the sort of torrent of social media panic and sort of doom porn from the main news broadcasters. And we'll do the same thing again and again. Surely people you know, like you, business leaders who clearly know their onions, need to stand up and say that there's been major mistakes made. But do you see anyone in the political or media class making the same argument? Well, I think it's been completely lame, Liam, I'm afraid. Um, and... <laughs> I don't mind saying it. I mean, I think the CBI, the Institute of Directors and others have been absolutely pathetic. Um, I think there was a fear amongst business that somehow speaking out, you know, for the economy would be, would have people saying you're putting the economy ahead of uh, lives. It's a complete false dichotomy, isn't it? Because economic downturns cost lives, right? Exactly. If there's one thing that shortens life expectancy is poverty, as can be shown all around the world. You know, there's the biggest source of reduced life expectancy but secondly they they were lame because the damage was not just economic you know the damage to the hospitality industry fine it is it is economic but you know my business will survive this downturn and will prosper after it you know hopefully more or less whatever these clowns do from now on but the personal tragedy of the people who work in hospitality you know who's got average age of about 23 years old so this is for many people their first jobs it's also an industry that employs a lot of people without qualifications not from wealthy backgrounds the personal cost to employees you know that should have been shouted out for by lots of people there are those that uh, you know will do right no matter what they're told and they're those that will always do what they're told no matter what is right i can't promise i'm in the first category all of the time but i definitely never intend to be in the second category but you know a lot of people seem to be a government came to these conclusions they saw what was happening in italy and so everybody just bought into it didn't dare speak up in case they were being seen as being you know callous or inhuman 
And as a result, this thing has carried on. And thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of uh, people's lives, particularly children and young people who are not affected by the virus, will be affected in, in many cases in a permanent way for no benefit whatsoever. And it's a disgrace, really, that more prominent people haven't spoken up for it. Hugh, thanks a lot for joining us on Planet Normal. And I look forward to getting together for a Knickerbocker glory soon. <laughs> or just a pint for a start. So we've lost around 340,000 jobs in hospitality so far, Alison. And Hugh told me after we finished that recording that his company was advertising for a couple of sous chefs in London. So sort of mid-ranking positions. They'd usually get... 15 to 20 applications for those kind of positions. He got 900 applications. I had no idea that hospitality was a tenth of the workforce. It's huge. I know what he was saying was, you know, very gloomy and angry, rightly so, at these business organisations, which have, as he said, you know, been pathetic. They've been pathetic. And there's been this moral blackmail, Liam, which we've experienced, haven't we, on Planet Normal, which is that if you express any, any doubts about some of these measures, then you you don't care about lives, you're not compassionate. And that's been the stick to beat us with. But I did feel uplifted by Hugh. We, we've talked to some great people on the podcast. And I do think that it's people like Hugh that we want to be driving our recovery and pulling us out of this. I like the mention of the wimpy bar. Do you remember that was um, that was that was that was the height of my aspiration when I was 14 was those I mean what was in those Oh I do like a brown derby. <laughs> what was in those burgers Liam? It was just some kind of weird brown donut on a saucer with some whipped cream. I mean crikey. And and the bur- the burgers were an astonishing kind of shade of ghostly grey. Do you remember the tomato ketchup dispenser which always had like a fantastic sort of encrustation on the top. And it was always in the shape of a tomato, wasn't it? Was it was in the shape of a tomato. Our young producers won't know what we're talking about, will they? No. They don't know how lucky they got it. Yo Sushi. They think oh. they think Yo Sushi just happens. <laughs> People fought for years. <laughs> they fought through thickets of wimpy bars and crappy greasy and spoons Bernie before we Inns got to great. Well. Do you remember Bern- Bernie Inn was the posh bit, wasn't it? If you got ever got steak and chips in a Bernie Inn. When chicken were. in a basket was the height of sophistication. <laughs> it was. It was. I still like chicken in a basket. I do like a prawn cocktail though in a glass. Mm, yeah, that shows our background. I think we've probably got, you know, got low low taste. But we did see, didn't we, this week these unemployment figures which on the surface look less bad than we might have expected, but of the 693,000 payroll jobs that have been lost in the past year. 611,000, that's 88%, have been lost, Liam, among the under-35s and 63% of those among the under-24s. And those are the boys and girls that Hugh is talking about, aren't they? You know, I really think we should take notice when people like Hugh Osmond, people who employ lots and lots of people and know the labour market from the inside are raising the alarm bells. Yes, the headline rate of unemployment is still low, but we've got five or six million people on furlough out of a workforce of 32 million. That's a huge proportion. And of course, I don't want it to happen, but a lot of those furlough people will lose their jobs at least for a while. So I do worry about youth unemployment. I do worry about us getting in a kind of Spanish or Italian type situation where there is lots of unemployment among young people And that's why the hospitality sector, I would say in particular, needs to be given a leg up, needs to be get needs to be given permission and scope to get back to work as this lockdown is lifted as soon as possible. Now it's time for our listener emails, a selection of the fantastic messages you send to myself and Liam at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. And maybe this week you could be sending us some thoughts about what were your good and bad moments of lockdown and anything you're looking forward to as please God we emerge from lockdown. This is one from Lisa that caught my eye. What an absolute delight to hear Douglas Murray, one of my all-time favourite commentators. I was thrilled. Douglas shines a light in these mad, over-politically correct times when it seems to be okay to erode our own culture but celebrate everyone else's. What a relief to hear his eloquent opinions on important current issues. Two points I'd like to make. 
Douglas Murray is a brilliant example of a gay man who just gets on with it. Many of us experience, in his own words, a version of unpleasantness that humans put upon each other. I am a four foot, 11 inch tall lady and all my life I've had to put up with teasing prejudice for being so short. Most of it humorous, but some has been nasty. And I was never allowed to be goal attack in netball, which was fine. Many people who don't fit the bill have to put up with prejudice in varying degrees, but we do not feel that this gives us any special rights and we all just get on with it. I wish more people would not take offence so easily and then weaponize it. The second point is our daughter is in her second year at university. She comes from a right-wing, pro-Brexit, royalist family, and we've always enjoyed good debate amongst ourselves, not always agreeing on everything, and with others who are definitely not of the same persuasion. What sort of society have we created when a normally gutsy young person says that she daren't open her mouth at uni on these topics? If she has changed her mind, that would be fine, but it isn't that. Douglas Murray is quite right when he says that the majority of the young are impressed by Meghan calling out racism in the royal family. This is exactly what our daughter is reporting back from uni. And she herself is starting to take these claims seriously, even more worrying. But she's entitled to her opinion. And I hope she'll have time to read more about what the royal family has done for the Commonwealth and the many charities that they support during her long holidays. I know that you've discussed it a lot on Planet Normal, but these poor undergraduates do definitely seem to be the forgotten victims in all of this. Most of them have had COVID, so are almost zero threat to anyone, if at all. The uni treats them with disdain. And how is it even considered sane not to allow a hockey team, for heaven's sake, to not go and train outside together if they don't mix with anyone else? The positive mental and physical benefits this could bring to them after they've spent more than half their time in lockdown so far massively outweighs any risk that they could be to the rest of society. But the impact on the young doesn't seem to be taken into serious account. There is no balance. Love your podcast, Lisa. Well, thanks very much for that, Lisa. We're really, Liam and I are going to be highlighting the situation of the young as we go forward. And talking of which, here's one from Siobhan. I love Planet Normal, she says. It's one of the highlights of my week. I'm a student in my second year studying economics. I've spent over half my time at university studying online. Like many my age, I feel sick of lockdown and online learning. I lack motivation and find it difficult to look at a computer all day. To claim this is the same as learning in person is ridiculous. Some of my friends simply receive links to YouTube videos to watch each week that anyone from the public can access for free. It's mad to charge £9,000 a year for that. More importantly, I miss the social interaction from seeing friends at the pub and after attending lectures. Every day there's news of vaccine delays and social distancing measures for years into the future. It makes me continually lose hope. I only hope I'm able to have one normal year at university. One of the most important discussions is vaccine passports. The risk to young people of hospitalisation or death from COVID is absolutely minuscule. I'm more likely to be run over by a car, says Siobhan. But like many my age, I've willingly obeyed the restrictions to save granny as well as the NHS. And we're unlikely the young to receive the vaccine until at least July, as we dutifully wait our turn for those more vulnerable to be vaccinated first. But I think it would be outrageous if our parents are able to go on holiday and enter hospitality and cultural venues while we cannot due to a lack of vaccination. For young people to have given up one of the best years of their lives to simply have more restrictions thrown in our face would be crazy. Many of my friends are at breaking points and we're not sure how much more of these restrictions we can take. The countdown to society opening is the only thing keeping us going. Thanks again for your fabulous podcast and for giving young people a voice. Siobhan. Here's a really interesting perspective, Liam, for someone who chooses not to give their name, but a very interesting perspective in this week, the anniversary of lockdown. I'm in my late 50s and a few weeks ago I asked one of my aunties who knew people now long deceased that were around at the time of the 1980 flu pandemic living rural village life. I asked, what do you know about the 1918 pandemic? Did it affect the village? Her response was, Mrs X was down at the churchyard burying one of her children and when she returned back home she found another of her children had died. Just sit back and read that sentence again. The tragedy of having two of your young children die of the 1918 pandemic, no modern medicines, equipment or vaccines then. 
That was a real pandemic. 500 million caught it and between 20 to 50 million died. So fatality rate of up to 10%, affecting a wide age spread in society. Contrast that to our current pandemic, where in the UK we have 185.79 deaths per 100,000. So that's 0.2%, 99.97% survive. This is a 50-fold difference with 1918, where they got on with life recovering from the war. Yet in 2021, we hide away at the behest of the government and trash the economy for a virus where the average death age is above the normal age that people die. From the start, we should have just allowed the vulnerable to shield as necessary, press on with developing the vaccines and let society operate as normal with a sensible approach to minimising risk in wider society like Sweden. This is from Lydia, again not her real name, who's in her early 30s. Thank you for Planet Normal. It's been a sanity lifeline during lockdown. I await it eagerly every Thursday. Another perspective overlooked during lockdown is that of the singleton. Loneliness has been acknowledged, but not really the impact on dating. After long and agonising discussions, I split with my husband last February, just before lockdown came on. Initially, I welcomed the opportunity quarantine provided to be grounded and work through lessons learned in the breakdown of my marriage. I didn't have to be in the office where colleagues could see me upset, but I couldn't see friends or hug my mum. In the time that's elapsed, I see a whole year of opportunities for moving on have gone. Dating's illegal. Never mind the difficulties of trying to divorce and do the hardest, most emotional negotiations of my life over Zoom. I also mourn the year of fertility lost. I wonder how long this will all go on and whether lockdown will return next year with new variants. I would normally trust I could find a new relationship. I'm confident with how I look, I've got a successful career, a number of fun hobbies, and I'm told I'm good company too. But now I'm starting to doubt myself. How long will singletons take to heal from this ghastly lockdown? Thank you again for Planet Normal. Keep voicing the experiences of real people. Lydia. Yeah, makes a really good point. You know, a year of lost fertility for women when they get get slightly older. And here's someone making another very good point. This is from Irene or Irene, and, and Irene is addressing the travel quarantine, Liam. We've put up with a lot of restrictions because we always thought there was light at the end of the tunnel, but the goalposts keep moving. I can't stop shedding tears over the travel restrictions, and this is the final straw for me. I work in oncology and have worked pretty much non-stop since the beginning of the pandemic. My parents in Africa have been going through health struggles with my dad undergoing radiotherapy and hormone therapy. A year later and I've not been able to go home to support my parents while every day I support all my patients here in the UK. My parents have spent most of the time in the countryside, no electricity, so no internet. And when they buy data bundles, we can only speak for a few minutes and a video call is out of the question. Our COVID deaths back at home are low, mainly because we have long had to deal with infectious diseases. As my parents' struggle deepens, I have to go home. Not only have I caught COVID, it was almost inevitable as a healthcare worker, I am also vaccinated. Yet, when I come back to the UK, I am not trusted to self-isolate at home, even though I have followed all rules and as a healthcare worker in oncology would never risk harming my patients. I am not wealthy, but I will have to pay over £1,700 to be in a hotel room where the windows probably don't open, the ventilation is poor, no guaranteed exercise and meals that are definitely not freshly prepared. When I tested positive for COVID, I had to isolate and got daily calls on my landline to check on how I was, even though it was obvious that I was isolating. I was always home when they called. When people now call for blanket bans on travel, let's not forget that a lot of healthcare workers are from third world countries and do not have the same communication links as those in the West. Those of us that have to travel are doing so not because we're wealthy, but because we are desperate. I need to see my parents. I need to look after my dad, even if it's for the, for the few short weeks when I'm home. Let's not demonise all travellers and let's not call for blanket travel bans with no consideration for the less fortunate amongst us. Thank you for your podcast that encourage us to cultivate our faculty of reason and empathy. Well, thank you, Irene, and I really hope you get home to see your parents. We should be 
having more compassion, Liam, about this travel. It's not everybody's going on some posh holiday, are they? Absolutely not. Another great email. And this is from Nicola, not her real name, for reasons that will soon be clear. I'm a judge working in the criminal courts. I would like to think I'm a sensible, well-balanced individual, but my sanity is being tested by the madness of these ongoing restrictions. Like you, Liam and Alison, I'm no COVID denier. My heart goes out to all those who've lost loved ones. The government's tried to balance how far they can encroach upon our civil liberties to save lives and protect the NHS, but I think they're getting this balance catastrophically wrong. I'm worried beyond belief about the carnage they're causing to society, and particularly to young people. In February, Planet Normal interviewed that wonderful, articulate headmaster from Scotland who could not have spoken more eloquently about the long-term damage being caused to our children who've barely merited more than a passing mention from our politicians and scientists. For months, I've maintained my judicial poker face in court, applying COVID laws I passionately disagree with, despite sleepless nights at imprisoning young people who will be locked up in a cell for 23 hours a day, supposedly to keep them safe. My 12-year-old daughter's struggled hugely with lockdown. She's been depressed, hostile to the rest of the family, a shadow of her former self. It's been so painful to watch this decline. Earlier this month, she finally returned to school. The transformation was immediate. She came home lively and energised. But now she's locked down again, as a child in her class had a positive lateral flow test. That same child has since provided another negative lateral flow test, as well as a negative PCR test. Yet the Department for Education says the whole of my daughter's year must self-isolate for 10 days. Yet again, her education and mental health are being sacrificed on the altar of absurd and senseless restrictions. I can't tell you how painful it is to watch my child suffer for no reason. If I do manage to hold myself together, it will be thanks to you. Each week I count down the days until Thursday when Planet Normal's released. Thank you for having the courage to challenge this ongoing madness. You're amazing journalists. I will forever be grateful. Nicola, again, not her real name, who is a judge. Wow, what a great email. When you have an actual sitting judge uh, describing the measures she's obliged to enforce as ridiculous, then you know we're in trouble. And you know, Liam, that Nicola, what she's talking about, her 12-year-old daughter, I've been hearing a lot of that. And do you know that at the end of last week, there were more than 200,000 children, school children, were at home isolating because of this lunatic mass testing of healthy children. So lots of kids gone back to school, very happy and excited, sent straight home because one kid in the class has got a positive test, which, as we know, doesn't necessarily mean they have COVID. And now they're about to have the Easter holidays, so they have another two weeks off. And these are harking back to emails from chaps, Liam, harking back to Douglas Murray talking last week about identity politics. James says, it does seem to be an Anglo-Saxon phenomenon. Here in Italy, there really is none of this nonsense of the myriad problems which Italy has to grapple with. Ripping down statues and cancelling its culture isn't one of them. And finally, this is from Stephen. As a man, I am now pretty much terrified to say anything to anyone about anything for fear of being branded someone filled with hate. So well done, everyone. You've driven quiet, decent men to the edge of society so we can't even engage anymore. Well, Stephen, all I can say is that co-pilot Halligan feels free to say anything he likes. And I, I'm a woman <laughs> and I pretty much absorb it. So don't feel you have to be quiet. We'll leave that one till next week, Alison, because that's it from Planet Normal, our sanctuary of sweet reason. Alison and I will be responding as normal to your comments on the Telegraph website on Thursday morning between 11am and 12 noon. And we'll put a link to that article that you can comment on in the show notes to this episode. And do please leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps others to find us helping our fantastic Planet Normal family to grow. And before we go, email of the week, who's going to win one of our limited edition rare as hen's teeth <laughs> Planet Normal mugs? Well, it's my call this week. And I say the prize goes to our young singleton, Lydia. Yeah. Again, not her real name, but she knows who she is. So email us again at planetnormal at telegraphco.uk. Send a postal address and a very special Planet Normal mug will soon be winging its way to you. 
You know, there's been some unseemly squabbling already over those mugs, Halligan. I mean, you know. Oh, I tell you what, I've, <laughs> I've got one, and the kids have nicked it. <laughs> I know. So, same here. I think I think there's a form an orderly queue. If you want to win one, write write in an email, okay? And for those of us who missed out this week, fear not. You can be in with a chance of winning one of three £100 John Lewis vouchers if you fill in our short survey. We'd love to know what you like about our podcast and what you'd like to hear more of. It should take less than five minutes and you'll find the link in the episode description. And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells, Isabel Bouchard and Elliot Lampitt and our editor, Theodora Leloudis. Stay safe and stay in touch with us and with each other. And until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs>